You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week we have director Christopher McQuarrie stopping by to discuss his new film, you might have heard of this one, Mission Impossible Fallout. We talk about all of the death-defying action he and madman Tom Cruise captured on camera and a whole lot more. So sit tight. This is Playback. yesterday you were tweeting out the, the places that are projecting on film yes and i'm from north carolina oh wow and then one of them was tarboro north carolina yeah which is like i was stunned of all the places it's just town yeah. close to the coast somebody uh somebody sent me a photograph of one of the theaters that i had that I had. So nice to meet you. Great and to meet you. And today, good luck on the rest of the way. I hope I will. All right, take All right, care. Take care. Um, it's just, it was very, they sent me just this picture of a dilapidated, broken down, rundown, <laughs> of both inside and outside. Uh, and they were like, really? Is this where you're sending us? And I didn't have a chance to respond to them, but it was like, that's where I grew up. <laughs> I grew up watching movies in theaters like that. Uh, so. Same. Yeah, same. That's what movies are to me. All right. Well, we're recording. Okay. Jump in. 30-minute conversation. Relax. Great. You're back from the tour. Yes. We're here with Christopher McQuarrie, everyone, the writer and director of Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, Hello. You're going you're gonna to run out of subtitles after a while? You know, we had a, <laughs> uh, we had a subtitle generator. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The studio put it together because the, coming up with the title is, is always a bit of a, of a production in and of itself. And they put together a list of – it was almost like the knock list. It was a list of you know, <laughs> different kind of spy words, and you could pick one off of each, each column. There were two columns. And they were the worst titles you could ever possibly there – were, there, were, there was no good combination. You've got to hear some examples. I can't really remember them. I wish I had the list here, but it was, it was quite awful. It was terrible. To do a parody version of the film with one of those. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, I saw the movie – few weeks ago i was blown away as i was telling you earlier oh, i was just exhausted much. afterwards in like the best of ways uh you know watching tom cruise do his thing and just that this movie sends you out on the biggest high because of the finale you guys constructed but we'll get into that uh thank you i, I, I want to start uh just to go back a little bit whenever you first came out of the franchise and uh rogue nation on the last film uh coming into it what kind of like aesthetic ideas did you have? I mean, I, I kind of felt like, you know, JJ revitalized mm-hmm. the series. Yeah. Uh, Twelve years ago now, which is crazy. Uh, I had Brad Bird on recently talking about Incredibles too, but we talked to him. I, I felt what Brad did really sent things heading in the direction that you guys have been yes. chipping away at lately. Yeah. And so when you came in, I just want to know what you wanted to do to really put your stamp on it. On uh, on Rogue, what I decided to do was something of a greatest hits. I was going to bring back, uh, I was going to bring back the members of the team that that uh, it felt like people had responded most to, which were Ving and and Simon, um, and and I wanted to I wanted to tip my hat to the to the four previous movies. It was a little bit of an anniversary. Thing it was just shy yeah. of twenty years when the movie came out, um, and I also knew what I do is, is I take all the movies on the last movie and again on this movie I lay them all on top of each other and see what 
haven't the films done? What's, what's something that's missing from all of those movies? Um, and, I, and, and what I wanted in Rogue Nation was a villain who was a physical threat to Ethan and, and a really strong woman who wasn't a member of the team. And we ended up with one of those two things. <laughs> um, Sean Harris, uh, who I had seen in Harry Brown, it became much more of an intellectual threat. He was more of a Moriarty to Ethan's right. homes uh, than he was a, a you know, a, a physically dangerous presence. Uh, the danger you feel around Sean is what is, is his unpredictability as yeah. opposed to his physical mass. Um, and so that was it. That was the really nice holdover. I was glad we didn't do that because that allowed for Henry Cavill in this movie. Yeah play with it now yeah how about visually um you know that there is an aesthetic i think even connected all the way back to De palma i think yeah. it's consistent in a way but uh changing that up when you came in was there anything that you wanted to do was there any were there any touchstones like any kind of reference points that you had a had an idea for the look of the film things like for that for rogue or for this one for rogue and then we'll go and then this yeah. one too yeah for i mean rogue, but when you came was, in yeah for rogue I, tom and i watched a lot of North by Northwest and Notorious. We talked a lot about Hitchcock, we, mm-hmm. and and of course De Palma is a is a huge disciple of of Hitchcock. Um, I am less so. Uh, I, I definitely am a huge admirer of Hitch, Hitchcock's work, uh, and the the opera sequence, which a lot of people look at as an homage to the man who knew too much, was actually more inspired by uh, the Key to Reserva, which was mm. a which was sort of a send-up of Hitchcock that Martin Scorsese did. And while I wasn't trying to recreate that, I used that as an example of how you could take opera, or in this case, a concert, uh, Which because I think Tom's concern when I first presented the idea of an opera to him, he was worried that it was going to be this boring opera scene. Right. And, um, and I said, no, 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 it's going to be more like this. Here, look, look, at, the, look, at, this, look at this little nine-minute thing. Uh-huh. Um, so visually, it's really interesting. I, I did not think in terms of locations as much as I thought in terms of uh, in environments that invite an action. Yeah. And in every one of those instances in Rogue Nation uh, where the, the action scenes were dictated by something that was brought to me. Um, and, when, and in the third act, we, we didn't really have the third act. And my my team was very frustrated because they they needed to know what they were prepping and I said I don't know what we're prepping because I don't have a location yet they said well we can't give you a location until we know what the scene is and I said I could write the scene and then we'll be killing ourselves trying to find a location and the real breakthrough I had late in that process was the insistence that we start with location Um, my visual sense did not really kick in until midway through that movie because we, I was so busy working on the screenplay and trying to execute that and so busy trying to figure out the motorcycle chase and the underwater sequence that I really didn't have the confidence to push back on, a, on my cinematographer or to, to trust my instincts about lighting until I started editing the movie over the Christmas break. I had about two weeks. Um, and as I was putting it together, I was like, well, why do certain things work for me and why do certain things not? Why do I like the photography in this scene and not like the photography in that scene? And what is it about my writing or my style of directing that is dictating the 
the good and the bad in what I'm doing. I was, I was spent a lot of time analyzing what had gone right as well as what had gone wrong. Mm. So when I came back from the Christmas break, I was much more confident to to start to ma- mandate certain things about lighting and photography that I was not comfortable with before. Mm-hmm. And I applied all of that to uh, I applied all of that to uh, Fallout. Yeah. From the very beginning. The, the thing you mentioned earlier about the opera and Tom was worried that maybe it would be slower or something. I'm curious if that's is that a consistent hurdle? Is he is he like always trying like like thinking that something might not be as amped up as he wants it to be or anything? No, like that? quite the opposite. Oh, what yeah? Tom really wants is he wants things to breathe and he wants he likes the, the word he uses all the time is elegant and mm. you know he loves he loves Hitchcock. He loves the classic uh, studio system style movies. And we find ourselves constantly trying to do that and being thwarted by an audience that's just not buying it. They don't. They don't have the patience. They don't have the. They don't have the conditioning to just sit there and enjoy. You have to be constantly engaging them. Yeah. And so we were very pleasantly surprised with this movie that um, the only time we didn't have a problem with the test audiences were those were those scenes that we thought were going to be the first things to go all the character stuff and you know the the scene where Ilsa is following Ethan through the through Paris that is the definition of shoe leather that's a that's a moment that gets cut out of the movie after the first test screening and i kept waiting for people to come for it and they never did. And meanwhile, we found ourselves getting notes on this movie that there was too much action. Mm-hmm. The car chase was too long. The helicopter chase was too long. And that stuff we know how to fix. We Nonsense. Have a, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, what you saw is is definitely the pared-down version of it. But you'd be surprised. There's, It doesn't take much. Sometimes it takes as, as few as, as two, sometimes even one shot, where if it, there, there was a moment when... Ethan and, and the motorcycle drive away from us and we let them get away from us before jumping back in the car and when we took that shot out all the notes about the car chase went away because you just, <laughs> just tweak little things well it's just because the car chase kept going but you were left behind yeah. and you had to catch back up with it yeah. uh, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic Hitchcock technique of filmmaking which is you grab the audience by the throat and you never let go and this movie was engineered to do that. It was also engineered to start quietly and get bigger and bigger and bigger as it as it went on. Yeah. We didn't understand how big. We really had no grasp of it. Interesting. Uh, these kinds of movies often you'll have like a, a cadre of writers on them. You yeah. know, you're the writer director, single vision. Um, I want to talk about on the page. Uh, you know, how do action set pieces come to you? How do you how do you find yourself writing them in ways that are different than maybe you were taught to write screenplays? Uh, you know, because there's such, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'll give you two examples. The foot chase. I knew what it was before I wrote it, described it, storyboarded it, and simply did not have the time to generate the pages. So I brought in a friend of mine who's a screenwriter, and I said, "Here's all my notes. Would you just please write this in script form?" Because it's it was twelve or thirteen pages, and I was working on other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I write very specific action. I write what I do with writing action is I write everything I want you to see in the order I want you to see it. 
So it, 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 my action sequences tend to be long in their description and incredibly boring to read. There's nothing more boring <laughs> than reading a car chase. Yeah. Uh, but you write that out because you want to communicate to your crew. It's not really meant for anybody else to read. It's, yeah. a, it's a very dry technical document. The helicopter chase was another instance where this, the, the, the script form of the helicopter chase was an afterthought to figuring out what exactly is the helicopter chase. Um, and how that all came together, the, the, I'll give you the very short version. Tom said, I want to do a helicopter chase. I'm going to learn how to fly, figure out a sequence that, that I can fly in. Uh, so the first thing you have to ask is, well, where are we actually shooting this sequence? doesn't matter where I think it should be. Some, some, the, the production is going to dictate where I can go. And very few countries were comfortable letting Tom Cruise, with six weeks of training, come and fly aerobatics over their country. And of those countries, there was there were very we were looking at the most photographically interesting one. What's going to have the the, the most vibrant color? What's going to be? And these were things I was not thinking about when I was doing Rogue Nation. Rogue Nation, I was just trying to execute the story. Uh, and we very quickly settled on New Zealand. Now, New Zealand is not a hotbed of political intrigue. It's it's a far flung corner of the world, and it's seventy percent of the country is national parks. There's no terrorism. <laughs> Plot that's going to yeah, right. that's going to kick off in New Zealand plausibly. <laughs> so we said, well, what does New Zealand look like? And then that became Kashmir. So Kashmir suddenly entered into the story, and I had to come up with reasons for why was this ending in Kashmir. Then I had to decide, well, if Ethan is flying in the helicopter, what's the rest of the team doing? If this is an opening sequence, I don't have to answer that. The team can just you can just introduce them doing a little bit of banter. If it's mm-hmm. the climax of the movie, they all have to have a vital role in stopping whatever the ticking clock is. We didn't even know what the ticking clock was at that point. Mm-hmm. But I knew from Rogue Nation how once you add the scene, once you add the team to the scene, the scene becomes exponentially larger and more complex. Mm-hmm. We had tried to to develop the A400 as a team sequence instead of just a stunt. Mm-hmm. And the movie really came together when I just let that go. Yeah. That that is the pebble that starts rolling down a hill that ultimately creates an avalanche and and so I had a helicopter chase I knew I knew that it was taking place in New Zealand I knew that the team had to be involved I knew uh, and I, and 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 ideally they were split up so I started to have an understanding of well whatever they're working on they're they're at least in there's at least two bits of parallel action going on on the ground yeah. three is probably too many and how is the helicopter chase going to begin and how is it going to end it's really boring to get in a helicopter throw on all the switches <laughs> so I had to figure out a way to get Ethan in the helicopter and then I had to figure out a way to get him out and have a fight with the villain because this chase is going to be really boring if it just if it just ends with the chase Yeah. Uh, so I knew I was going to have spoiler alert, a mid-air collision mm. and and now I'm thinking plausibly in my mind, well, if two helicopters collide, they're not going to land together. It's going to be extremely <laughs> chaos. Ca- it's going to go from chaos to extreme chaos. Yes. And I went to my production designer and my visual effects guys um, and said, what I need you to do is I need you to create a bathroom sink. So if I drop two marbles in a bathroom sink, no matter where I drop them, they're going to meet at the drain. And I want both marbles to go down the drain and spill out onto this cliffside somewhere. And we'll have this climactic fight on a, on a cliff's edge. Um, 
And the problem is that in New Zealand there is no mountain like that. Yeah. The problem with New Zealand is very beautiful. It's not a problem with New Zealand. It's <laughs> the, the unique feature of New Zealand is that there's very little in the way of precipitous drops. It's mostly sloping cliffs. Um, or and, and places that did have a precipitous drop didn't have any sort of plateau. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I put that to my um, my location guy. And in fact, it was the only thing in the entire movie that I specifically asked for from my locations. Everything else was I mandated to them, go find me stuff that looks cool, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what's happening there. This was the one time where I said, I need this. And he brought me a picture of Pulpit Rock in Norway. So right then I knew my helicopter chase was starting in New Zealand, uh, would have a lot of transitional elements in England, and it would end in Norway. And in fact, that helicopter impact in probably about 30 seconds of screen time, you, you, you travel through three countries. That's crazy. Movie magic, right? Yeah. Um, you know, your your Twitter feed is a wealth of, ama- of information. It was, I it was, hope it was, so. It was a nice, uh, made for nice prep for today. Uh, one thing you were talking about yesterday that blew my mind was just the focus pulling on the halo jump. Yeah. Which, uh, just walk people through this. I mean, first of all, first of all, I want to ask, what was the drive to do it this way when it's something that you could probably just do in a wind tunnel or whatever? Talk. Uh, Really, yeah. I mean, we, we, we any any of the stuff that you see in Mission Impossible, we could very easily do yeah. on a stage somewhere. It will not give you the same visceral energy that you're experiencing when you watch your star doing it. And I'm I'm able to shoot things in a way that I couldn't otherwise. Be honest, how much is that him also just wanting to have that experience? Um, there's no doubt that there's a large element of him having a great time doing it. Yeah. But for Tom, it's not about, hey, look at me. Right. It's look at Ethan. It's putting, it's what it enables me to do. And I, I had read somewhere today, somebody, uh, somebody sent an email to my wife who had watched the film and they completely nailed what my intention, which is often very rare. Um, that he felt like he was a spectator in those sequences. He felt like he was there, mm-hmm. which is very much why I place the camera where I do. I shoot everything in a somewhat voyeuristic point of view, but not a voyeur peering into the room from the doorway. You're right over Henry Cavill's shoulder. You're right over Tom's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Tom and I work together to create that sort of immersive experience so that you're with Ethan and you feel what's what's happening you're just that much more invested that's really what we're after um so when tom said he wanted to do a halo sequence i knew right away first order of business is i had to pull him out as opposed to push him out the the, the camera had to be looking at ethan and going backwards off the back of the plane and i knew right away i needed to play bigger than the a400 the c17 was the only plane to do it there was a lot of it said there were attempts to discourage us from that and to use a c130 i knew uh the c130 was not going to be as big it just wasn't going to be as it, it, there's almost a spaceship quality to the c17 it's mm. got kind of a weird interior environment that looks a little bit surreal especially when it's empty um and that was again me pushing the visual palette in a way that i had uh so we then had to figure out, well, what kind of camera is it going to be? Is it going to be steady cam? Is it going to be handheld? 
we then decided that we were going to do as much of the scene in the plane before Tom went out so that you, you, you and, and once I decided that once we decided that I said well if we're going to have a oneer inside the plane we might as well keep going and just do the whole thing as a oneer and we devised it originally as five pieces that could be stitched together and we masked those stitches the lightning strike hides one of the stitches his collision with henry hides one of those stitches there were originally five shots and we distilled them down to three but of course in doing that you're adding more action to each of those three segments and they become exponentially more complicated to get right mm-hmm. because I could get four out of the five things right, and if number five is not right, I've got to do the whole thing all over again. So we were making it complicated for ourselves that way. To make it more complicated, there was not a cameraman in the world who could do what we wanted him to do. There were, cam- there were skydiving videographers, but there were not cinema camera operators who could jump out of a plane with 20 pounds of camera equipment strapped to the top of their head. Yeah. So we had to train a guy. Backwards we, at that. And backwards, yeah. yes. Everything Ginger Rogers did. Um, Crazy. So we had to train a guy in narrative storytelling. We had to train him how to shoot a warner and, and understanding where to direct the eye. What, a, what, what these guys are used to doing is image capturing. They get a wide shot and they, they shoot all the action. They don't zoom in on somebody and follow their eye line. Yeah, they're not doing visual storytelling. They're not yeah. doing visual storytelling. Yeah. And that is a, that's a skill that I've honed over 20 years yeah. and been able to communicate in a shorthand. It's, it's, it's something if you watch the four films I've directed, you can see it mutate from movie one to, to the most recent. So reminding somebody whose job it is to keep the action in the center of the frame that, no, Tom Cruise is not the center of the frame. Tom Cruise's point of view is the center of the frame. So that when, Tom, when the camera's on Tom's, oh, you know, on his left side and Tom looks to his right so that the back of his head is to him, you want the camera to actually pan slightly left and open up yeah. the deep background that's not his instinct. And so time and again, he'd be jumping out of the plane and shooting Tom. And you'd say, no, you've got to shoot empty space. You have to shoot where he's looking. And he's like, yeah, but there's nothing there. And we're saying, that's exactly right. You're saying there's nothing there. That's really antithetical to yeah. him. And he had to learn a whole new set of skills. To make it more complicated, we decided that this was a nighttime sequence, which meant we had to shoot it at dusk so that it could be dark enough that... It looked like nighttime, but not so dark that you lost all of the detail in Tom's clothing because he's wearing black yeah. and Henry's wearing dark green. You had to shoot at just this razor edge between night and day, and you had three minutes of available light every day. So we had to be in the plane at a specific time, and that plane had to be over the drop zone. And the, where it – and it's – relative position to the drop zone changed every night based on where the wind was. So there was an enormous amount of calculation that went into when does the plane take off, when it, where is it over the drop zone, when does it have to be there, when can Tom jump out, and if he was 30 seconds too early or 30 seconds too late, the shot was screwed. And you know we could, we could time it down a little if it was too bright. But the problem was you saw atmosphere and haze, and, you, and the other problem was if it was too bright, there was ambient light on Tom it just and so when you tried to make it look like night 
it wouldn't look like night. It would look like bad day for night photography. <laughs> so it was incredibly um, uh, unforgiving, the light conditions. And making that more complicated, the focus issues at that this is insane level of light was were incredibly intolerant. Yeah. It, Tom had to be three feet, basically from where I'm sitting from you to me right yeah. now. And they would measure that. Uh, Tom would lay on a table. So like he would lay like he was falling in space, and the cameraman would walk around the table, and the guy with the tape measure would show all the measurements, and he would practice with the focus. But he's not looking through the camera. He can't. He's just got a little crosshair over one eye. But the yeah. camera's on top of his head. So not, he has to remember not to look at Tom, but actually look eight inches below Tom so that the camera's actually doing the looking. Right. And it's essentially like filming a movie through a periscope and not being able to look through the periscope. And, and having to remember from sense memory in a room not much bigger than the one we're in now what three feet feels like and then recreate that distance at 25,000 feet at, in, in different light conditions while falling anywhere from 160 to 200 miles an hour towards the earth. And Tom had to then jump out after the cameraman whose job it is to go faster than Tom to get away from him mm-hmm. and then allow Tom to catch up to him. And as Tom and Tom has to stop himself and there's no he can't brace himself against anything. Yeah. He has to he has to slow his ascent so that stopping is actually not stopping. It's just coming in perfect sync with the camera operator so you're falling at the same speed. Yeah exactly three feet away from each other. And if he was three inches too deep or three inches too far back, he's out of focus. Because the camera operator knew the best he could do is bury the focus aperture. I guess that's true. It's this little device he had in his hand. Mm -hmm. He just buried the focus to minimum and then let Tom fall into it. Come into focus, yeah. He couldn't then adjust back if Tom... He he couldn't gauge it. And the first two times we did it, uh, Tom was out of focus. Um, and we were struggling with, well, whose fault is this? You know, Tom was saying, I was three feet from that camera. I said, is it possible that your depth perception is a little bit skewed because we measured it in a, in a 10 by 10 room and now you're 25,000 feet in the air? Is it possible you could be a couple inches off on your mark? And he said, man, I'm telling you, I was three feet from that camera. And he said, Look at my hands in the frame. Look at where my hands are on the edge of the frame. And I know, and I know f- Tom very well. He knows lenses well enough that he understands where the edges of frames are. I've seen him do yeah. it many times. And sure enough, it matched our rehearsals. So I looked to Craig O'Brien, the camera operator, and I said, Craig, what are you doing? He goes, man, look at the, look at the thing. And he showed me how the focus thing worked. You couldn't make a mistake. You just, you pinned, you just pinned it all the way to the left. And I said, well, what's wrong? It's, it's either Tom or it's Craig. And maybe Craig's slow, get to the focus. We couldn't figure it out. And eventually Tom would come into focus, but it was very slow to get there. And on the third night, Craig went home. We were very frustrated because you can't move on to the next shot. And Craig went home and had this epiphany, and he came back to work that night. We had a second focus puller on the plane because the shot's on the plane required much more yeah. uh, radical focus moves that this little wand that Craig had couldn't do. So we had actually two focus pullers, one who had a radio remote. Um, and 
uh, Craig came to work and he said, it's you. He said, when we jump out of the plane, you got to shut off your remote. The camera is still connected to your remote and they're fighting with each other. And he goes, that's not possible. We lost picture right away. And he said, I'm telling you, that's what it is. And he goes, you guys are falling at 160 miles an hour. We're traveling at 160 (laughs) miles an hour. This thing's got a range of like a couple hundred feet max. And he just said, just when I jump out the plane, turn off the focus. And he goes, you understand if I shut off the focus and your focus doesn't kick in, you're not going to get the shot. And we jumped out of the plane, and sure enough, he just, as soon as they went out of the plane, he shut the focus off, and there's a delay of several seconds before the focus comes in, and it just caught right as Tom (laughs) fell into the camera, and we got the shot. Where are you during all of this? Are you down on the ground eating grapes? I am alternately, it, it would depend. There were times I was on the ground, there's times I'm on the plane, and the truth of the matter is, beyond my directing the cameraman after he's shot the shot, after he's all we can do is look at the shot study it and say here's how you do it better next time Mm -hmm. it didn't matter where I was I could have been in my hotel because there was so I was on the ground in a trailer which the editor Eddie Hamilton had brought the movie out and we were cutting in the trailer while they were rehearsing all day and they were rehearsing these jumps five to seven times a day waiting for the light to be right you only had one take a day Mm -hmm. So I would be in my trailer cutting, and they would periodically come and get me as Tom and Craig landed, and I'd get in the van with them and drive back to the airstrip, and we'd review the footage. I'd give them notes, and then I'd go back to the editing room, and they'd go back up in an airplane. Got it. Sometimes I went up, and um, and when we went to 25,000 feet the first time I went up, I was like, I want to, know, I want to experience that. Um, and that involved a 20-minute breathe-up. So you're on the plane huffing oxygen for 20 minutes so that you don't get the bends. And I just, after I did that a few times, I just said, there's, I love being here and I love being supportive, but there's, that's, there's better use of my time. Like yeah. it, we, we, were, we were so desperately late on editing the movie. Uh, and this sequence was going on longer and longer and longer. Uh, and, there's, and there is something slightly surreal about standing in an airplane calling action and then watching your entire crew just jump out of a plane yeah. and leave you standing there yeah. uh, and you and you have to go back and wonder who made it you're flying back to see okay is everybody alright yeah. I was much more comfortable waiting on the ground I kind of just picture you like on a chaise lounge with a monitor being fed grapes watching, <laughs> watching things go down I would love that <laughs> if only it were that um how, by the way, how does all this kind of stuff weigh on, like, like what are the conversations with the insurance company with this kind of stuff? Fortunately, that's a, that's a Jake Myers question, our yeah. producer, Jake. You've got to ask him. I, I ask it, and I always get very technical answers that, I, that are completely unmemorable. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a simple matter of, you know, whether we're risking Tom's life or that of a stuntman. It's, mm-hmm. it's, the, same, it's the same relative risk, the only difference being that if anything happens to Tom, we that's severe we don't finish the movie um, yeah. whereas in the event of a stuntman you can you can keep going but it's they've been doing it so long and the and the and the the the, the calculated risk is very very carefully thought out mm-hmm. when you're watching a stunt with Tom we've eliminated as many variables as we can and what mm-hmm. we what I try to do is is create the stunt so that Tom is the only variable mm-hmm. Tom or the stuntman around him. So while he's driving through Paris, he's in control of that bike. 
and all the cars around him are being driven by stunt drivers. They're all professionals. So while it looks crazy and chaotic, it's actually it's it's very carefully planned and controlled. The variable is there's a language barrier. A lot of the guys, a lot of the stunt guys working in Paris are local guys. They're French, and every now and again, somebody didn't quite get the message, and their car was not where Tom expected it to be. That's the scary stuff. Yeah. But I know that if Tom, if Tom has the slightest concern uh, about being able to control the bike, whether it's the cobblestones are cold or they're wet or they're slick because they've been there for however many decades or centuries, he'll he'll just he'll back off. He'll he'll just say, you know, we can't do this. It's not safe. Yeah. Uh, he's not he's not some lunatic who's so determined to get the shot that he's going to kill himself. He's very careful. Yeah, I wanted to talk. Uh, just go back a bit, you know, between uh, Way of the Gun and Jack Reacher. That's twelve years. Yeah, and you know, you were writing and doing plenty in that time. But were you itching to get back to the director's chair? Um, yeah, I was. I was. Uh, it's funny. I I didn't start out with the ambitions of being a director, and my ambitions to become a director were all born from wanting to do one movie. I wanted to make a film about Alexander the Great. I saw it so vividly that I wanted to do it, and, and everything about directing was in pursuit of that. And when and uh, we, I developed a script, mm-hmm. I couldn't get it made. I sold it to Graham King, GK Films, who uh, attached Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. And it was a big moment for me of letting go of a dream project because I, I hold on to those things very, very tightly. Um, and I was developing that project for seven years. Many people had asked me to give it up. Many people had asked me to attach actors that I didn't want. And Graham King was the first guy to sit me down and say, here's the deal. Like, here's how, here's how it works. You need a star to get the movie made. You, my All the foreign distribu- distribution has said... You need Leonardo DiCaprio. I happen to work with Leo. I underwrite his production company's deal, and I showed him the script. He wants to do it. I said, great. And he said, now, Leo's got a very short list of directors he wants to work with, and respectfully, your name's not on it. I said, And he said, one of the names on his list is Martin Scorsese. I know Martin very well. I underwrite his production company. I showed him the script, and he wants to do it. And the only thing left to discuss is your fee. And after seven years of holding on tightly to this thing and rejecting any sort of abstract offer to let us attach another director or let us attach another actor, it took me a split second to make the calculation of you're not going to get a better combination than Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. So when he said, what's your fee? I said, the record. What's the record? What's the most anybody's ever paid for a screenplay? Because I've now developed a spec script that... Marty and Leo won. So, fair. What are you going to pay me for it? <laughs> and by the way, I have two partners, so make it divisible by three. Um, that. What was the record, by the way? Uh, well, I, I, will just, <laughs> I will just say it stands. It okay. remains. Okay. Um, so I managed to sell. I sold the script. That helped to. That was one of the things that kept me alive during all that time. And, uh, and, and it made my, my, uh, my. It took care of my partners as well. Uh, and but I also learned a very valuable lesson through that and through things like Valkyrie, which were no one wanted to give me an opportunity as a director 
on the things that I wanted to direct. And then in order to direct the things that I wanted to direct, in order to direct Valkyrie, um, I had to make X-Men. They were happy to do it with Brian. They they didn't even need to read the script when Brian Singer decided he wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the moment where I decided to quit the film business. I just realized I'm... I'm I'm in the business of making other people's dreams. I'm mm. more importantly, I'm in the business of trying to get movies made. I'm not making the movies I want to make. And this is said with all gratitude. I still haven't. I've mm. I've uh, you know I've made movies that other people have wanted me to make. Mm-hmm. I've had the 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 great fortune to be able to make them my way mm-hmm. uh, with with an enormous amount. Of freedom. I mean, you make a movie with Tom Cruise. The only person you have to answer to is Tom, and you know, Tom has final cut on his movies and uh, and 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 a track record to back it up. And Tom is somebody who's very trusting of his collaborators and wants to learn from them. So, you know, and we get along very well. We see eye to eye on a lot of things. So suddenly, I went from a guy who couldn't make movies to I'm making these big giant movies, and I have I have relatively wide berth. I have a lot of creative freedom. Uh, so much so that you're making a movie without even really a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's unheard I mean, of. the guy says, I want to be in a helicopter chase, and then off you go to write, write this helicopter Yeah, you chase. go off yeah. and you... Well, and, but more importantly, because the time is so compressed, you don't even have time to write it. Yeah. You, know, you sit down with, with previous guys, Develop and you start it, yeah. building models, and you start... You start working out, well, how would I actually physically do all the stuff that's around the helicopter chase part? We'll worry about writing it in script form later. Yeah. Um, that's very liberating. And, and it's, and it, but at the same time, all of those dream projects that I spent all that time developing in, those, in between the, the two movies I directed, in the 12 years between my directing gigs, in the seven years between making The Way of the Gun and Valkyrie, I've never made one of them. Valkyrie's mm-hmm. the only one that's ever been made. Mm-hmm. Uh, periodically, with each with each new success, someone comes around and says, "What do you want to do?" And I bring one of these things out, and I get the same answer. They just they don't want to do them. They, still, still, no, they don't want to do them. Here's what here's why, and I'll tell you why. Unless I make a film that makes a billion dollars, nobody's ever going to want to make what I want to make just because I want to make it. Right. That's not to say they won't make my movie, but right. i got to get a big star attached. i got a big, you know, I'm not at a level of a... I'm not the director at which for whom the studio is coming and saying, we'll do whatever you want to do. Okay, so when are you making your Marvel movie then? Because obviously the IPs are the things that but make that I kind of But if I made a Marvel movie that made a billion dollars, it's a Marvel movie. That's what I mean. I mean, it's like... Marvel guys are not going to walk away and be able to make whatever they want. They're going to be able to make whatever Marvel movie they want. Yeah. Chris Nolan yeah. made The Dark Knight outside of that whole thing. And he really... What he did with The Dark Knight was Chris Nolan. It wasn't Marvel telling Chris Nolan or DC telling yeah. Chris Nolan what to do. And then he parlayed that into Inception, and he parlayed that into Dunkirk. Uh, you know, Dunkirk, which now now the guy has proven not only can I make money off of comic book IP, I can make money off of World War II, and nobody makes money off of World War II, or at least that's the conventional wisdom. World War II movies make money all the time, but the studios to have a memory erase yeah. button that that allows them to deny that that's true. Yeah. The reason why no one wants to make World War II movies is because World War II movies apply appeal to older men 
and nobody wants to make a one demographic yeah. movie. It's very hard to get kids to go see a World War II movie. Yeah, unless it's Captain America. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so I find the I find the the ways to do the things I want to do in the movies that I'm given. I go through the door that opens, and and sure enough, after Rogue Nation, the movie did well, and and. Certain people came to me and said, "We love this movie. What do you want to do?" And I just said, "Watch." <laughs> I handed them a script, and they either never called back, or they called back with why they couldn't do it, or uh, you know. And it's it's they, they just it, in in truth, I don't have the I don't have that financial clout that blindfolds people to whatever it is I'm doing. Yeah, because Nolan makes movies, makes money off of his name at this point. He's a brand. Nolan is the brand there. We've got to make Christopher McQuarrie a brand. Nolan, uh, well, let me tell you something. I would imagine that most of the people, even people listening to this podcast, um, movie nerds would, would struggle to name 10 or 20 directors. The average person at the checkout line at your supermarket, I'll bet you they could name two directors. Yeah. They could name Spielberg and one other guy. Yeah. They, you know, and, no, and none of them would all name the same second guy. Yeah. You might mean Michael Bay yeah. might be a contemporary guy. The directors don't really, not most of them don't get movies made. They're essential to making a movie. Screenplays don't get movies made, and that's what mm-hmm. I was told. I was taught you write a good screenplay and you'll be delivered. Mm-hmm. I wrote a bunch of them. They're all still sitting in a drawer. So does that make them not good? Or well, no. It just means that they're not they're not things that people they're not things that immediately scream, hey, this is gonna make a lot of money. Cameron had a hard time getting Avatar made. By the mm-hmm. way, there's another guy whose name, mm-hmm. you know, people know that's like a household name. And Cameron is is strangely an industry in, in and of himself, yeah. he exists in a completely different firmament than just about anybody. He's a, he's a director that I look at that I can't put in a class with any with any others. Yeah. Um, so you the, the the screenplay is an afterthought to the decision to make a movie. Mm-hmm. The the studio decides to make a movie for different reasons. A lot of time and, and a lot of times they lose sight of what the agenda was. And it just becomes a movie that they have to make. Mm-hmm. And so, oddly enough, I will find myself being offered World War II movies. But they're not my World War II movie. It's some other unmakeable World War II movie. <laughs> and I'm going, well, well, why is this World War II movie okay and that World War II movie's not? I, and I remember one World War II movie was offered to me because an actress wanted to be in it because she liked the clothes. you know, And she was what made the movie go. It's that sort of thing. There's not... You can't think about it logically. If you yeah. if you apply logic to the movie business, you'll go completely insane. Yeah. You just have to look at it and say, you know, circumstances are such that one day I've got this script sitting in a drawer, and one day the right actor who's the right age to and, and is excited about that idea is going to want to be in that movie, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll get to make it then. And so, they just don't worry about it. You just you keep going. You just yeah. keep going. So then, what do you want to do next? I mean, do you do you want? I, I read something recently. You would like to get back into the independent sector a little more. Is that true? I well, I definitely what everything that everything that I have learned has culminated in Fallout, and I had I if you if you could say anything about the movies I've made, you you you'll 
they've evolved from a writer turned writer director to a director who relies more on visuals and emotional storytelling than dialogue and intellectual storytelling. Um, Usual Suspects is an intellectual magic trick as opposed to an emotional one. Belated congratulations for the Oscar, by the way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> 23 you years much. later. Or whatever uh, yes. And, and the, it's, Love that it's, movie. It's the, thank you. It's the life draft that kept me alive during all those, <laughs> during all those uh, the wilderness years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'm excited to take everything that I've learned and everything that I've seen pay off in this movie. This is the first time I've made a movie where I was able to say, this is what we're going to set out to do and we did it. Yeah. You know, this this is the feeling I want the audience to have. This is the shape of the movie I want. This is the look of the movie I want. Uh, it's the first time I've made a movie that looks like a movie to me from beginning to end. There aren't scenes where I go, it looks more like a TV show than a movie. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm very keen to apply that to something other than the PG-13 blockbustery realm. Yeah. I'm, I'm constantly railing against the fact that we are we are chasing after a demographic that doesn't want to come to the movies. Kids don't want to come to movies, not because they don't like movies. The, the industry, I think, has misread it. The industry looks at it and says, well, they have a short attention span, they're all focused on their phones, and blah, 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 blah. Well, no, that's not true. They have an infinite attention span. They're watching 13 hours of television in a sitting. Um, they like long, complicated narratives, and with graphic adult complicated situations, none of which we're giving them, mm-hmm. none of which the, the, this, this PG-13 mechanism can give them. Uh, I promise you, Marvel movies are overwhelmingly, their audiences are overwhelmingly adult. The kids that are going are coming with their parents, and, and the, the under-25 demographic is not nearly as rich as the, as the over. Mm-hmm. Um, Mission Impossible's young under-25 demographic has dissolved from Mission 2 all, steadily all the way to this one. I'll be very interested to see what the numbers are in this movie if we manage to, mm-hmm. to grow it for the first time since John Woo. Yeah. Um, that's the, the, what's, what's happening is they don't have an emotional connection to the act of going to the movies mm-hmm. that's just not how they were raised you and I were raised going to the movies mm-hmm. that was a thing you did and it was the way that you saw films and and for them the, 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 the film they love narrative but it's coming to them through other devices that they're accustomed to seeing things on mm-hmm. it's always freaky to me when I see somebody on a plane watching a movie on their phone in portrait mode. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not even in landscape, and I want to reach over and turn the phone <laughs> sideways, let alone watching it on a big screen. Yeah. Um, you, you keep, we've lost that portion of the audience. There's no winning them back. I'm, yeah. I'm encouraged mm-hmm. to see that this year, the, you know, you, you felt some growth. We see, we see the market expanding. But we didn't condition them. We didn't train them. We, we, in, in, in our attempt to chase after them, we were consistently hammering them with the things that they didn't want. Mm-hmm. We misread it, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's that's gone. They're not coming back. Maybe the next generation, but I don't think they're they're not coming back in numbers significant enough to make a difference. Right. Well, let's not end on that note. No. Uh, let me just end on this. Uh, do you have another one of these in you? Do you want to go back to the Mission Impossible world? And I'm also curious. Do you have any idea uh, from Tom how long he wants to keep? Playing at Ethan Hunt and these things. Tom will be in an iron lung, <laughs> being shot out of a 
you know, a shot out of a, out of the International Space Station and re-entering <laughs> the Earth's orbit in his nineties. He will do this until he's never going to stop, and he'll he'll make movies right up until the moment he dies. Not yeah. interested in retirement, vacation. There's no, there is no exit strategy for Tom Cruise other than right. you know, uh, other other than making movies until he <laughs> he's he's good. You know, Tyrone Power died. <laughs> During the sword fight on set. That's, you know, um, I don't see another scenario for Tom. Uh, I also don't see anybody else doing Mission Impossible. Uh, Not because they're not willing to do it, because the the discipline and the the sheer amount of lifelong training, dedication, and focus that allows him to be in the position to learn how to fly a helicopter in six weeks. You got to start real young and be building on those skills every single day of your life mm-hmm. to get there. I don't see an actor out there who's even started. Uh, that's not to say somebody won't come along. Somebody, But uh, with the exception of Jackie Chan, there was a lot of time between Buster Keaton and Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the analogy. It's Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin. Um, do I have another one in me? I, when he asked me to do five, I had just seen Brad Bird do four. And thought, I never want to do that job. It's really hard, and it's really exhausting and terrifying and uncertain. Uh, when I finished five, I said, I feel sorry for the son of a bitch who directs this next one, because I don't know what's left. And then the joke was on me. I was the guy. Um, and I know now, with the reception of this movie, how do you top that? How do you top the... The, the, not only the, the audience reaction, but the critical reception to this movie. The concept of facing that again is so overwhelming. It's too much to contemplate. At the same time, now having been working with Tom for 12 years on this, this and, and feeling the momentum steadily gaining with everything that we've learned and applied, I know it's possible. Mm-hmm. I, know it's, I, know, I, know, I know this movie, which seems untoppable, can be topped. Mm-hmm. And somebody will top it, whether I can survive being the one who tries to is is another question yeah. <laughs> um, and one that's just it's just too daunting to comp- contemplate now yeah, probably not the ask a question to ask right this second yeah I will tell you this when the, when the movie ended when, when we, Tom and I sat down to watch the movie at the premiere in Paris, it was the first time we saw it together. And the credits rolled, and he nudged me, and he said, "Yeah, we can do better." <laughs> he was he was ready to go, and we got on the plane to fly to to uh, Korea to keep promoting the movie. And he was already talking about the wow. next sequence. He was like, "This is what I want to do next." He's got he's got a hat full of ideas. And look, here's the thing: Tom, I have learned from Tom. There is no such thing as personal limitations. And if you had told me ten years ago. If you'd shown me this movie and said, "Yeah, you directed that," I'd be like, "Bullshit!" There's just no way. There's no way I would, I would, I would have the imagination or the technical knowledge. I just, I can't. And I look at stuff that other people do and go, "I could never do that." Um, Tom, Tom was always there to just to say, "Here's what we need to do." It's not, hey, he's not like cheer, cheerleader rah rah. He's like, "This is what we got to do," and he asks for something really, really difficult to do with a very specific set of practical parameters mm-hmm. that you understand it's the unwritten law of Mission Impossible. i got to do it for real. Mm-hmm. So when he says something outrageous, you, your first thought is, 
other people's first thought is, oh, we could do that on green screen and do it very easily. We did it in, and they'll list five movies. And it's like, yeah, well, we're not those five movies. Yeah. We're Mission Impossible, so we got to do it for real. That puts you in a place now where I'm so conditioned, I'm so... There's, there's, you don't even ask the question anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't concern yourself with can we do it or not. It's like, got to get done. It's yeah. not even let's figure it out. It's let's like the work. We will be doing this. Um, and so, yeah, I know. I, I definitely know it. It can be done. It's the, the, the concept of it is so extremely daunting. I remember on Edge of Tomorrow when he came to me with Edge of Tomorrow and said, you know, this is going to be this is going to be a really funny movie. He said, it is a funny movie. I said, no, it's not. I'm reading the script, and it's not funny. He goes, no, but it's going to be. It's going to be. And he had a real vision for what that movie was. Um, I never would have thought. We, I, I never would have thought it turned out the way that it did, ever. So now I just don't even, I don't even think about it. What I do know for, absolutely, for absolute certain is whatever I do next with the success of this movie, I'm going to get crushed. I'm going to get kicked in the teeth. It's just you can't. You can't you can't go on that sort of ride and not have the pendulum swing back the other way. There's just and there's no more room for the pendulum to swing. It's whatever whatever I do will be a disappointment. It'll be it'll be devastating. Well, I don't want to end on that note either, but I guess we're kind of have no, to. But let me tell you, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> okay, let's hear. Because it's really important to understand. You, there is no success without failure. You don't yeah. learn anything. I'm not learning anything from this experience. This we we got off lucky. We got you know this is great. It all turned out. You're there will be no brooding. There will be no me sitting at home saying what I did on the way of the gun, which is what happened, what went wrong, what could you have done better. Mm-hmm. All you're asking now is how can I do better than that? That's not the right question to be asking. Mm-hmm. The question you want to ask is how can I improve, mm-hmm. not how do I top myself. That's not a healthy place to come from. I didn't come into this trying to make a better movie than Ghost Protocol. I didn't come to Fallout trying to make a better movie than Rogue Nation. I just kept my head down and said, just do the best you can. And the, 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 the most important lessons I've learned in my career have been those lessons that I learned when I got flattened after directing The Way of the Gun. That, that time's coming, and it's just the pain you feel is your own show breaking. You have to do that. That doesn't mean I'm looking forward to the, you know, uh, to the deep tissue massage that that will be. But you just have to breathe into it. It's, that's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a tetanus shot. It's going to hurt. It's yeah. good for you. But you got to get it. You, that doesn't mean you get it. You, you get in line for the tetanus shot. Right, right. Well, yeah. here's to failure next time. Yeah. For now, though, this is high-level madman just amazing filmmaking so thank you hats off everybody go see a mission impossible fallout comes out tomorrow or tonight as you discover tonight as i discovered yes that's like gravy go see it a bunch of times you'll want to trust me and uh christopher mcquarrie thank you for coming on the show thank you so much thank you great questions thank you